a new public service podcast brought to you in full by Hachi the Hack. Hachi the Hack probably gives a f- what you think. If you don't like it, then you can find another means of entertainment. Little did you know, upon giving this a chance, you have just found the best thing about lockdown. Hachi the Hack is fed up with the media and government sh- and may well let rip. Anything else? I guess followed and enjoyed the podcast. Hello there once again, troops and troopettes, and a very warm welcome to episode 4 of my Corona podcast with me, Hodgie the Hack. You've needed to wait a week between our hard-hitting episode 3 and today's offering, but we've already got pods 5 and 6 just about ready to go in the can, so you'll be getting 3 quick hits this week, and goodness knows we need it after Bojo's speech. For new listeners, the purpose of this podcast is to inform and entertain, and as I always say, provide some sanity in the lockdown. For today's episode, I decided it's time to think about how things are affecting the Waynes, the children, the kids. Are they going to be alright as a result of everything that's going on at the moment? So we're going to look at the impact the pandemic and the lockdown could be having on kids' education, their welfare and development. Just before we dive in though, regular listeners will know I usually compare the pod to a drink just before we start to give you an idea of what to expect. And I expect today it'll be like a long, strong, hearty glass of milk, invigorating and good for helping to ensure that the kids are grown up to be big and strong. I do hope that this episode will be useful for parents especially who are maybe a bit concerned and I know many of my friends are in that boat. It's a hugely important topic, so for that reason I found two top voices to speak about it. My first guest is a man with more than a quarter of a century of expertise when it comes to mental health, psychotherapist Noel McDermott. And award-winning science teacher Mattel Thanke is alongside him. She's the founder and CEO of Spark Academy down in Leicester. And she and her team down there offer maths, English and science tuition to children aged 9 to 18. So she should give us an opinion from what it's like in the ground. And also we'll be hearing from her at the end of the pod just about some lessons she's got going on, which are free and parents can do them, kids can do them online. So any kids that are missing out on their learning, that should be really good for. But first up, let's hear a bit more from Noel about the work he does and why it's relevant to today's discussion. So I've been working in the mental health field, like you say, for over 25 years. Um, I'm a CEO. I have a couple of companies that provide mental health clinical services in the independent sector. My background was the NHS and social services. I was the senior manager in children's services in social services mm-hmm. and um, a manager in the NHS in looking at um, a lot of community care services. So moving people out of um, uh, long-term institutional care into their own homes. Also education is my background. So a lot of work in education in prisons, forensic work, um, a lot of work with um, highly traumatized children. Um, living on streets and in gangs. Um, so a whole bunch of stuff, is, which is what happens when you've been around as long as me. No, definitely. And I think that that, that idea that you can give a, a, a sort of view from across the, the, the span of society spectrum is really good for us this morning. And, and yourself, Mattel, tell us a bit about your work, the school, and how your day-to-day work as a teacher might have changed since the pandemic hit. Yeah, I mean, what we what we do, um, over the past couple of years, we've had a bit of a reform with the curriculum that we provide our children. Um, so not only do we do the maths, English and science, but we also teach um, children about well-being and mindset and how to sort of change and shift mindsets to try and help them attain 
their the desired outcomes as well. So that was a big sort of a big emphasis, a big thing that we sort of introduced a couple of years ago into, into what we do. So, yeah, I mean, things have changed dramatically. Uh, luckily, you know, last in, in sort of March, we warned the parents at the beginning of March and told them, look, we, we do think that our teaching is going to go online. Um, and, and the move to that was, was, was pretty was pretty flawless on our end but that's because we sort of we've actually invested quite a lot into our sort of online infrastructure mm. um so i think that was a good move on our part a couple of years ago by making sure that we've done that but um it's it has had its challenges i mean initially in the first couple of weeks i think it was mostly sort of speaking to parents and sort of calming the parents down because i think for them it was rather overwhelming not only to you know have um, you know, work being sent by their teachers, but then also getting used to new technologies. And, um, and I think then that started to filter across to, to, to the children as well. Um, after a couple of weeks, it, you know, it seemed to have settled down. Children and parents were a lot more happier. I think then, you know, they started to settle into the, to the new norm. So yeah. To speak. yeah. No, I, I think that's the thing. Now, obviously, Spark, you've you've got the infrastructure there for that. But one of the reasons for doing the podcast today is to look at parents who maybe have children who 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 can't go back to school. And obviously, mm-hmm. in the sort of public sector, there's a there's a massive a, a massive concern, I think, amongst parents at, at this time around all of this and just the the ambiguity. And the worry that surrounds their, their children's education. Now, we're going to come on to talk about mental health specifically in a minute, but in terms of yourself, now, are there any other areas of children's development that you are particularly worried about? Well, uh, the Sutton Trust produced a report last week showing only a third of children are getting structured educational services during the lockdown. Mm. Um, what that means is that the, the type of um, uh, uh, problems that we know exist in schools such as kids that um, do well do well because their parents are more involved um, kids that are hard to reach anyway might end up in um, a, a sort of prus, uh, pupil referral units etc those types of problems um, which schools are very good at sorting out are now going to become very embedded for this generation um, and so that as we think about coming out of the lockdown um, and back into a structured educational environment for children, they're going to come with those types of uh, problems embedded and much more severe. So what we're predicting is that the number of children with uh, mental health behavioural issues and the severity of those issues are going to increase um, possibly quite serious issues because of the lack of the protective balancing factors of being in a social environment such as school and in particular being around trained professionals who can spot problems and do referrals. Just a very simple uh, thing that's gone on is that we know referrals to CAMS, Children and Mental Health Services, have hit the floor uh, around children because there's nobody seeing the kids to uh, raise the the alarm Uh, and that in itself is extremely alarming at the moment. Mm, yeah, I would, I would say it definitely is. Sorry, yeah. I mean, no, I absolutely agree with you, Noel. Um, I think one of um, the biggest worries are, you know, obviously children that are vulnerable um, and, you know, and, and not having that, that social interaction with their friends, their peers, you know, the teachers, etc. Um, and yes, you're right. You know, a lot of these children 
um, you know, see school as their safe haven. Um, and that is the most worrying thing. I mean, personally for myself as well, um, I was very worried about those children who rely on their school meals as well. Um, and, you know, so we've got a whole range of, 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 of factors here that, that means that, you know, a lot of children, unfortunately, um, you know, are at risk with, with mental health issues um, moving forward. Yeah. yeah, I think the mental health... I was just going to say, I think the mental health is one side of it, but I think you're right to touch upon the the, the social services side of it and, and the fact that there, there are societal factors here that are affecting individuals because you've got kids that rely on the school meals. You've got kids that, 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 that have reliance on transport. I, I mean, I put myself in, for example, say you're the parent of an infant's age child and say they decided schools go back to next week. So I just want to focus on, on how the parents might be thinking at this point. So what would you be thinking if they said, right, the schools are going back? You might not want to send your child in because of the risk of catching the virus. But there's also then you've got to think about staff around it as well. You've got to think that if schools are open, then employers are going to expect staff to go in. And then you've got those staff are going to be having to find childcare for their children if, or, or, or whatever. You know, that there's, there's so many different factors conspiring here and so many difficult decisions that people are facing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, the risk of infection is the risk of infection. And, and until we've solved that conundrum, uh, society is faced with making complicated and difficult choices. And this is one of those complicated and difficult choices where we have to balance a number of factors. Um, the risk of infection to children is relatively low. The uh, COVID-19 doesn't have much of an impact in terms of children who catch it. There's this very tiny cohort of children who develop, develop some uh, respiratory. The, the, the in, infection conversation is happening around the adults that come into contact with the children. So the, the children are effectively carriers and it's the adults around them that are worried uh, about um, catching from those children. So the teachers and their parents, etc. And those are legitimate worries. Um, and, but they are legitimate worries that need to be addressed in a structural manner that doesn't put the developmental needs of children at risk as well. Mm. Um, we're going to be dealing with this virus with maximum three years before it's all sorted out, um, which might sound frightening to somebody, but that's it. It's going to be done. And then these children have got the rest of their lives after that. And so these are the balancing risks that we need to look at. So mm -hmm. these kids are going to be living with the consequences of this for the rest of their lives. We are going to be living with the virus for the next three years. And so we need to look at it in those terms. We can't have a binary conversation, either schools open or schools close. We yeah. can't afford binary conversations like that anymore. We have to have a realistic grown-up debate about it. One, and these are structural issues that need to be dealt with at national levels by national governments. Well, it's, it's stretch, it stretches even further than that as well, because, I mean, what about the kids that come from homes that don't have internet access? You know? Absolutely. That's the biggest thing. Um, you know, there, it's highlighted the amount of children that don't have access to the internet or also just, you know, um, computer equipment at home. Oh. And so that means that there's a large proportion of children who, who aren't homeschooling the same way as other children are. Yeah. So that's, again, you know, it's highlighting disadvantages um, across the UK, um, which, you know, it, which is also quite worrying. Um, so moving forward, you know, should there be some sort of uh, grants or things like that in place to, to help children across the UK access education fairly? 
you know. Um, so that's also another another thing to consider. I think that's one of the things we can also think about if we have a mixed economy about it. That, you know, yeah. I'm sure some people will say, oh, you can't suddenly magic up a load of computers. But what you can do is you can invest in the um, software infrastructure for schools for those children that do have access to the hardware and those that don't they can come into school and you yeah. can still then maintain social uh, distancing rules around that mm -hmm. the point i'm saying and it's a point that's uh, been made about children is that they remain voiceless in this conversation so when yeah. i look at the news i hear all the adult concerns being talked about i don't hear the child concerns being talked about because children can't advocate for themselves they need us people like us to advocate for them and say what about me what about us? We have yeah. rights, we have needs, and we are going to be living with this into our adulthood. I'd like, why isn't there a children's minister on these briefings? That needs to be in there as well, because we're losing a generation. If we're not careful, we're going to lose a generation. So we're that, going to be living with this as a society. I, I was going to say then, so how does that break down? You guys are, are, have far more expertise than me, but is it, going to, is it not going to be a different impact depending on the age of the kid? So you're going to have kids at the, the sort of younger, more infant stages, then you'll have kids at the, I mean, I know it breaks down into key stages, I'm not sure how, how that all goes, but it's sort of, say, age 7, 8, 9, then 10, 11, 12, and then teenagers, yeah. you know, it's going to be different depending on the different kids. So how do you see the impact affecting the different age groups? Personally, I think that obviously, you know, there's a lot of research that's gone into summer learning loss. So there's that idea of, you know, after the kids come back from their summer holidays, you know, it takes them up to about seven weeks to catch up on their learning from when they left uh, school in July, for example. So yeah. there's still a lot of research that's going into, right, what's going to happen during this COVID learning loss? But when we're talking about learning, we're not just talking about, you know, the academic aspect. We're looking at the soft skills, you know, um, is there going to be uh, an impact on, yeah, the development of their, their soft skills, for example. Um, you know, we've, we've faced cancellation of exams. So, you know, how is that going to now impact, you know, um, the, the educa educational system moving forward? You know, so there's there's a lot of things um, that we need to consider as well as, you know, will things within the school actually change as well? You know, will, will class sizes remain at 30 um, or are we going to go down the sort of reduced class size route and can our educational mm. system cope with that? You know, how does, you know, what do the hours mean for teachers? And mm. you know, so there's a whole load of things that we need to consider. And obviously there's going to be a point where you know, teachers are going to be facing a lot of pressure to try and bridge that gap, you know, that yeah. the children have lost out on. So how are, how are we all going, going to do that? You know, so it's raised a lot of questions, um, but it's also started to, to force some, some innovation within, within education, I believe. And I think that's really important because, you know, for years we've been saying, oh, you know, is an exam necessary, you know? Is it actually necessary? Is there other ways or other means by which we can assess pupils? Um, you know, are, are the teacher assessments actually, you know, because obviously through, due to the cancellation of exams, are teacher assessments moving forward, are they sufficient? You know, um, are they the best way to assess how a child is doing? So it's sort of brought about all these sort of ideas. And I think within education, we were so scared to, to, to change anything about it because we felt you know for hundreds of years it's, it's worked you know this model has worked yeah but now 
now it's forced people to start questioning whether or not you know it is currently working and moving forward if there are things we can learn from it to to yeah drive innovation really without that i mean i think coming from a sort of child development perspective um, the uh, coming back to the original question about different age groups and the in the relative impact on um, one thing is sort of rule of thumb if you like is the younger the child the less this stuff is really going to impact on them because the young children are more focused on their immediate settings such as parents and, and siblings it's once you get into beyond five six seven more into eight and nine that these the removal of these social groups and in particular mm -hmm. things like physical contact play etc have mm. uh, very very serious impacts upon personality development um, so just to keep it very simple um, the frontal lobes of our brain encode all our social activities and we call the frontal lobes of our brain for a better want of a better word our personalities mm -hmm. uh, in that are all the skills that are associated being a human being in a modern world um, anything that interferes with that development is very very serious indeed uh, whatever the reason for that interference and that in that development can be interfered with by a number of ways all of which are happening at the moment that's how serious potentially this is and then why we need a solution fast uh, apart from the education what school does is it sets a child up for the rest of their life in terms of being able to live in a complex world with complex relationships mm. the issue children is the withdrawal of all these opportunities for their um, social, educational and psychological development. So what's the answer to that then? How, how do you go about that? Well, we need to open schools as soon as possible. We have to get them open, however we get them open. And I believe the way we do that as quickly as possible is we go with a mixed economy. I don't understand why it's possible for Harrow, and I know they've done this, to have all their children fully online through all of this time. If they can do it, every single school in the UK can do it. There has been stuff in the news saying that primary schools could reopen on the 1st of June. Now, just to use the example of Denmark, that was the first country in Europe to reopen schools. I think they had reopened in, in April the 15th with social distancing measures, with smaller groups, larger spaces between desks, things like that. But the Danish Infectious Disease Agency, which over there is known as the State Serum Institute, found the reproduction rate of the virus, or the R rate, has risen by a third from 0.6 to 0.9 since doing that. The National Education Union here have said that five criteria need to be met before reopening schools. There needs to be much lower numbers of COVID-19 cases, so that's a, a sustained downward trend. There needs to be a national plan for social distancing, and that involves obviously the government having the plan in place and appropriate PPE. There must be regular testing for children and staff, protocols in place in the event that a school has been affected, so say someone's tested positive, and there must be protection in place for vulnerable people, high-risk people, people who live with high-risk family measures, stuff like that. So essentially, scientific evidence that is safe to do so. We all know that the UK in, in terms of numbers and things, is, is definitely at the wrong end of the league table in that. But the stats from Denmark as well suggest that reopening schools, uh, and when you bring into it as well the fact that children might not have access to an internet connection, so, so reopening the schools with measures might be the only way to do it. It's, it's a tricky balance to strike because, yeah, there's a commercial and a societal imperative to get the schools back open but how do we marry that with the safety of children teachers and all the stakeholders now i'll i'll ask you that Mattel. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a real tough one. And I think it's as well, it's, it's about balancing emotions and feelings. So how do people feel about going back to school as early as June? You know, it's, it's a tough one, I'd, I'd say. And I think really, we have to start thinking about, right, class sizes. I mean, is that something that we can, we can actually change in such a short span of time? You know, I think there's ideas of, um, you know, uh, teachers teaching like a morning, a morning session till two o'clock, I think it is, and then doing sort of three till um, a later time in the evening. So splitting the day into two parts. So again, that could potentially put a lot of pressure on teachers as well um, in terms of their morale. But are teachers actually um, also happy happy to go back at the moment? Again, it's all based on hmm. you know, managing those fears and those anxieties around okay is it actually safe to open is it safe to go back and i think if there's a little bit more reassurance on the safety aspect of it then i think like and, and like you mentioned if there are um you know actual things put in place you know definite government guidelines as to you know how schools need to operate then i think that will be a lot more clearer um mm -hmm. and, and i don't think that should be an issue then um to, to, to do um, but definitely I think that moving forward this will have a large a, a big impact because will we ever be able to return back to a class of 30 children you know it's mm -hmm. it's it's sort of raising those those questions um, it, it, I, I just think from an operational viewpoint um, it has sort of changed things and I think schools are going to have to really think about as well as the I mean, government has to outline what they want the schools to do but I think there's going to be some real um, real changes to the way that schools genuinely operate. In terms of what Noel was saying as well I, I think he feels there's been a real dereliction of duty from the government so far with regards mm. to this you've also had years of austerity and, and funding getting cut and that kind of thing does there have to be a sea change in the way that the government looks at this and how how important is that call to action right now is this something that you would say is a, a real urgent priority absolutely 100 percent. it's an urgent priority because i mean i think i i noticed with my with my students you know when the, when there was a cancellation of exams the amount of stress that that caused because we had children and parents just saying, well, what's going to happen? And then not having heard anything for a couple of weeks really, really stressed a lot of children out. So I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a firm plan, firm plan of action. Okay. Everyone needs to know about this. So including head teachers, because I think head teachers and teachers were finding out at the same time as the general public with what was yeah, going yeah. on. There's been a real communication problem with all facets of, of the government's response to this. And that's frustrating. You know, that's very frustrating for head teachers. I mean, how are they meant to motivate their team? How are they meant to sort of get things sorted, you know, for, for, for their students? And I think that that's, that's been one of the, the fundamental issues here. So if they come up with a, a you know, a firm strategy um, and then, you know, make sure they tell the schools and then it becomes public knowledge, I think the whole process will be um, managed more effectively and more efficiently as well. So I think that's something that needs to be done urgently. 
Um, I really do believe that. And I mean, looking at it from an academic viewpoint, well-being viewpoint, the sooner the kids are back into school and safely back into school, then we're on to a winner. I think if, if kids just go uh, sort of just sent back to school and then that has a problem, you know, with, with infection rates, etc., then then we're losing at the end of the day. So we need to make sure it's their informed decisions, they're all strategically mapped out and mm-hmm. managed effectively. Um, and I think, you know, I mean I totally agree with everything being said. Coming back to the sort of R rate, I wonder how many people understand uh, I'm not a um, uh, an expert on transmission rates but my understanding from Wiley is we need to keep it below one we keep it below one we're winning that's it so 0.6 0.9 it's below one we're winning now the argument we're having as a society is because everything we'll do will change that R rate between 0.6 and 0.9 mm. um, and it's the priorities that we decide on now um, because we can change the R rate from 0.6 to 0.9, and that's perfectly safe because we're still underneath one. Um, but we have to make choices about what changes we are allowing. And at the moment, the voice that's being heard is the voice of adults, not the voice of children. Who's saying the five-point plan from a children's perspective and from a childcare perspective? Yeah. Which organisations are in there? Who is in there saying, this is our five-point plan and our priorities include you not messing up our future, thank you very much. I think a lot of people are still caught in the headlines around this stuff and we need to stop being caught in the headlines. This is going to be around for a few years and we've got to manage it for the next few years. And there are all sorts of innovations that can happen. Um, and it's about what priorities as a society and a culture. I would say we need to invest in the future, not in the immediate. Mm. From my perspective, the damage to children at the moment is lifelong. So, so uh, it's kind of twofold for me as well. Um, and hear from you in a sec, Mattel. Um, It's kind of twofold for me here. I think one half of this is mitigating and dealing with the response as it happens now. But I also think there needs to be a preemptive plan in place because the, the point is, there's already, children are already having their mental health, their development, all of these things are being damaged by this situation. And they will continue to be because there's no perfect solution here. There's kids that won't be able to get online. There's schools and parents might not want to open. That I don't think this is going to be something that can be addressed purely on a macro basis and work for everyone. So with that in mind, do we need to be thinking, A, yeah, how do we solve this problem now? But also B, how do we put plans in place to mitigate the, the future damage that might happen? I think personally, uh, you know, no, what you're saying about, you know, children's voices being heard is, is really important in terms of the strategy moving forward and what interventions need to be put in place, you know, in, in schools to make sure that, you know, we're, we're helping those kids bounce back to a degree you know um so the idea would be listening to the children understand what their specific needs are how they're feeling um, in terms of academia personal development and then start introducing possibly you know a more sort of structured well-being curriculum um, within schools that's sort of geared towards helping these children bridge that gap um, so i think there will be I think in terms of future strategy, a lot more sort of um, holistic um, aspects to education that's going to take 
prominence, I believe, as well as, you know, extra sort of academic based um, interventions as well to help those children achieve a point um, that they should have or, or would have. So I think, you know, that there's, there's loads of different solutions that, that could be put in place, but I firmly believe the emphasis on well-being will be, will be huge in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, one of the things I've argued for in various other sort of um, articles, etc., is that we need to have a new uh, coronavirus curriculum, to be honest, so mm. that we go back with a really clear direction on what needs to be covered in terms of uh, looking at the potential impact of children. Uh, but also, I think, just getting them back to some sense of normality. Uh, one of the biggest ways you can help children is just do that with them. Um, mm. Get them back to everyday activities that they're familiar with. Um, so one of the things I've been, you know, encouraging parents to do um, is to have some sort of simple structure in place that suggests to children that it's going to be all right. Because once you've got predictability, structure, activities, etc., in place, that will really, really ameliorate some of the problems um, that are going on. Um, the issues, I think, are that you know there's limited amount of energy that parents have to become to turn their homes into a school, an office, etc., 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 and they're beginning to struggle and they're beginning to suffer around that. So there are things we can do now, for example to help parents not have just a simple conversation about should we open or close schools? Yeah. How are we reaching out to parents now? What resources are we giving them now so that we can help them um, and maintain their resilience and resilience of the family systems that we have in place? You know that saying, it takes a village to raise a child. What we've done is overnight, we've taken away the village. And then we yeah. say to parents, okay, you, you deal with it now. We need to stop having that sort of attitude and we need to say no we're going to be a bit more proactive from today we're going to be proactive and start supporting you in practical ways well uh, i think i think that's a really good point um and i was talking to a teacher a friend of mine before this and she told me about an old study called harlow's monkeys now in that study for our listeners you guys have probably heard of it they basically had two lots of of monkeys one had their 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 birth mother and the other had a mechanical mother who, who was set up to meet feeding needs alone but nothing else and the findings from that study were that the monkeys without the mother were, and with the mechanical mother, were developmentally disordered. Now, that was a huge study in terms of child development because it changed the way that children were kept in hospitals um, with regards to, to parents or vice versa. And nowadays, that's self-explanatory. Really, you don't need a degree to know that <laughs> no parental interaction would be damaging. But what's relevant about that today is there was a lesser-known part of that study where they also had subgroups within these mother and no mother groups where there were either other young monkeys or they were by themselves. And what they found was the monkeys who were alone with no peer interaction also had significantly disordered development. Even if they had their mother with them, the monkeys who, who feared normally, as it were, were the ones who had their mother and peers or siblings to interact with. So that completely backs up what you guys are saying, it backs up the mental health concerns are there. Um, I mean, just to, <laughs> just to put in a bit of context, that was done in the 1950s and those monkeys couldn't FaceTime their friends. But I, I think that just does raise the, the, the issue and, and shows just how important it is that we, we address this and that we are aware of, of the impact this is going to have. Because I think 
people's natural reaction to this in, in every aspect of it, everything feels reactionary. What the government's doing feels reactionary. And obviously, just as a society, we're reacting to this the best we can. It's a pandemic that, that, that no one expected, and it's, it's totally changed everyday lives for everyone. But you've got to look at this in terms of the way that you guys are trying to do. You've got to say, right, how, how can we affect this in a positive way? How can we affect change here? And the issue of the mental health seems like the one to me that is, is massive. You, you talked about children's voices being heard. The children's commissioner spoke to a 14-year-old girl who said, I feel so alone with my depression. Being with my friends yeah. helps, and I'm so isolated. I stay in my room. I've got no idea when I will get back to school or see my friends. So, yes, I'm extremely stressed out over this. Childline have reported an increased demand in counselling sessions. A Young Minds survey... The, the charity last month of children who already had a history of mental health needs showed that 83% of those people who already had issues said the pandemic has made their mental health a bit or in some cases much worse. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues is that the, the parents and all the parental structures in society have lost the plot a little bit. And to imagine that... By that. Well, I just mean the, you know, the reactionary response and the government looking at the news media, the closure of this and that, uh, having your actual parents quite frightened about what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. These types of things have a direct impact on children. You know, children don't do what we tell them to do. They copy what we do. Yeah, we are afraid. We are reactionary as adults, and they become afraid and reactionary as children as a consequence. So the idea of having some sort of structured, integrated response is absolutely essential, and that the adults around the children can manage their responses to this situation is absolutely crucial. Coming back to the study around the monkeys, what you're talking about is what we call attachment theory. Uh, attachment theory is an important part of how we understand how the brain develops in an individual through emotional attachment to significant others. Uh, and we know that schools, uh, we know that nurseries, etc., uh, reopen attachment processes in children. Uh, and that's what I said earlier on uh, from the perspective of social services. So we know, for example, from that perspective, that if a child comes from an abusive home, uh, one of the ways that you can fix that is by sending them to a good school. And you literally affix the abuse in that child because they go to a good school that produces positive, strong uh, attachments in that child. And that fixes the damage in their brain. Literally, that's mm. the way it is. We're missing all of that at the moment. And it can only, to a certain extent, be met by online um, uh, classes. And for the two reasons that I said, which is that the online classes don't produce a response in the brain of mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are not fired. And also it doesn't produce oxytocin responses. So those are the key issues that we have to deal with. We have to deal with the fact that children need, for their safety and their normal development, they need real-world contact with other children and with other adults. It can't simply be kept within the family. It can be done temporarily, and we can ameliorate, but we have to get children back into these complex real-world social groupings so that we can begin to repair some of the damage that is going on at the moment. 
Mm. So in, in terms of what schools can do then, Mittal, what, what, what do you think, um, what, what more can be done in terms of schools? Because you, you talk about a good school, no, but I think, I think it's, <laughs> you can't sort of tar sort of good and bad, black and white. That again is the, the binary language that you speak about. So mm. I think what we do is we, we look at what schools can do because it's not going to be like we can just fling Wayne's back into a school. We're going to have to say, right, what steps can we take to get to that point? Or do we just go for it? I mean, I'll come back to you in a minute, Noel, but Mattel, for yourself, what can schools do in the meantime to help get to that point? So I think the idea is obviously a lot of, a lot of schools are doing what they can with the resources that they have to support parents at home during homeschooling. And I know that a lot of parents are, you know, all of a sudden facing a lot of pressure because now they're solely responsible for their child's education. And obviously it's, it's different schools are doing different things. And again, that's based on a load of factors, you know, staffing, you know, finance, whether or not they have the technology infrastructure in place to be able to deliver um, a homeschooling curriculum to, to parents, you know. There's, there's so many things that, that, are, um, that, that need to be considered. I mean, teachers right now, you know, I mean, I've, I've been hearing lots of, uh, of mixed things from, from my students and my kids, but they're, they're saying that, you know, teachers are trying their best in terms of delivering the work, sending the work to them via email, or kids are able to get, get onto a portal and download the work. But something interesting came out of it. They were saying, well, actually, I, I really like to write on a worksheet or I actually just like to get pen down on paper. Really? Um, you know, something simple, something, I mean, when I was teaching in school, I remember that some students would hate writing, you know, absolutely dislike it. But in this, in this, um, in this period, they're actually missing very small things like that. You know, it's the tangibility, I think, that they're really missing. Um, mm. And also, it, it brought another thing to light. You know, they were like, well, actually, we don't have a printer. So it's really hard for us to try and do the work when it's on screen and I'm trying to write. And, you know, so it's all these different skills now that the kids are sort of sort of having to pick up them very quickly. And, and like I mentioned before, you know, there are some parents who, you know, um, are having to, um, you know, familiarize themselves with technology a lot more quicker so it's not just the kids that are having to learn it's it's the parents yeah and and, and like yeah. Noel said you know if if you've got parents who are, who are facing that pressure and you know and that leads to anxiety then obviously it's going to trickle yeah. down to, no, to you. No, no. I mean I'd, I'd agree with the, the, you know getting a sort of smart complex response which is what you're talking about so that we stop having a simplistic conversation about it but things i think that we can do now you know if it's too much of a challenge for systems to um, go full tilt and get schools open again what we can do right now is think about child development issues and it is possible for example to create uh, complex online spaces for children to interact with so one of the things i would advocate for is that, that what we do now is because there are problems with online reality there there always have been problems mm -hmm. and we were already discussing the impact of the online world on children's development and without a day um, online um, worlds are going to have a, a huge impact upon um, uh, culture and society going forwards and always was going to be and this is this situation has just accelerated that but one thing we do know that ameliorates some of the problems about being online is the relationship to the online space 
So if we have a situation in which people are just staring at uh, YouTube all the time or Netflix all the time, um, that, that has a really problematic impact upon uh, individuals and, and uh, their development. But if we have the type of online spaces that require interaction and relationship skills uh, to be used, then that has a much more positive impact on people. So if we can't do lessons right now, it is possible, I would argue, that we start having groups of children who are in the same class meeting up with each mm. other on and that schools can yeah. organize that and organize social events in which um, kids get to see their mates and talk about what's going on so we can start that now that doesn't need a huge infrastructure investment that just needs a school head to decide to open up a business account on zoom and start setting up meetings and that can happen overnight but again it's this point about people advocating for children and saying what do they need and yeah. this isn't going to take a huge government policy shift it is going to take a shift in attitude away from worrying about the needs of adults and to start to worry about the needs of children so we can do that stuff right now i would argue i think that's a great idea but yeah. the, the one concern i would have is the sort of child protection aspect of it cyber security is essential you know um we've, we have safeguarding policies in place in, in within schools so we make sure that children are protected but now we need to really seriously think like I think that there still needs to be a policy in terms of online education safeguarding and making mm. sure that the technology that we're using is keeping our children safe. Um, so I think cyber, cyber security is a, is, a, is a big thing. But actually supporting your point, Noel, um, we, uh, what we've done is we tend to have children, they, they, they have group sessions um, with us anyway. We've yeah. kept the timing of the lessons exactly exactly the same so in terms of their routine we're, we're, we're keeping that there but yeah. what we do with the kids is that we encourage them to log on about 15 minutes earlier exactly. and, That's you know we mm. get them to log on earlier we have a chat you know we talk about you know what's been going on they express their feelings you know some of them might not express their feelings you know but it's just the fact that they get to have a bit of a laugh with their friends and they don't need to express their feelings. You know what kids are like. Mm -hmm. You don't need to directly, you don't need to bang them overhead, but no. they can naturally heal each other, can't they? Exactly. Um, and I think it's having that banter with one another. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of interesting that one of the, one of the, my students, um, you know, he said, I, I just, I really miss you guys, you know, and it's not something that you would hear in a normal classroom environment. But on this particular day, he, he said to everybody, I just, I really miss you guys, you know, it's yeah. really good. I, I look forward to seeing you guys online every week, you know. Mitchell, so, that's exactly what we need, isn't it? More of yeah. that creative thinking around how we're delivering um, services to children at the moment. And, you know, what I'm saying with all the mental health professionals that I employ at the moment is that, you know, forget all the complex developmental stuff. We want to give people spaces in which they're associating with each other. Uh, and being able to just talk in a way that they need to talk about what's going on. And that's essential for children and their development, that they have these spaces with people that they know well. Coming back to the earlier point about, um, you know, the experiment with monkeys, um, you know, those monkeys weren't uh, getting specialist help. They were just being allowed to associate with mm, their yeah. peers. And association with our peers is incredibly healthy for all of us. Uh, and that remains an absolutely crucial sort of need that all human beings have is time to chill out and associate with people that we feel a warm, strong bond to. Uh, my concern is at the moment that the longer we um, delay 
that possibility for children, uh, the longer that we get, uh, or the more risk we are, that we're going to create a generation of children that switch off, have no empathy for each other, um, and can move more into psychopathological responses. Wow, and that was a really, really, really strong comment. Um, and for, for, someone, for someone who's coming at this from a far less informed perspective than either of you two, that's that's a really concerning thing to say. Isolate children in the way we are, and you are setting up significant problems. Isolation in and of itself is a significant problem. Families can only socialise children to a certain extent. Above a certain age, families cannot do that job. Society has to do that job. And either society does it uh, ad hoc, or it does it in a structured way. We've chosen a structured way, and we call it school. Mm-hmm. And then we socialise children in that way. That's what we've taken away from children. And the potential is to create very, very significant harm. Not just exacerbate the harm that already exists, but create new harm. That's what we're talking about. Now, at this point, we haven't done it. But if this goes on, because this virus is not going away tomorrow it's not going away by the end of this year it's going to be with us until we have mass vaccination programs which depends on choose a number in terms of how long that is going to take maybe in cambridge they'll have got it done by september and they will produce the the team there will produce a million vaccinations by september as they say maybe but we don't just need a million vaccinations we need tens of millions of vaccinations for Mm. that policy to work that's going to take several years so in the meantime we have to be realistic about what we're doing uh, in terms of how we are working with children and how we are moving them away from these highly isolated states that they are in at the moment because isolated states for children you know what you're talking about is uh, significant damage developmentally now i don't want to overread the pudding but if you think about it if you think about some of the images we remember from Um, the um, treatment of children in orphanages in um, uh, Eastern European countries. And we saw Mm -hmm. these children, I mean, they were very severely abused and that's not what we're talking about here. But a lot of the damage to those children was because they weren't allowed to just socially interact with uh, their peers and their fellows. Do you share that level of concern, Mittal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one of our things was you know we don't offer one-to-one tuition and there was a reason for that and we believe that you know with kids being in in small groups they have the chance to collaborate learn from one another you know um, and and develop those social skills those much needed social skills to be able to do well in the future and, and 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 form those relationships you know ongoing relationships become a lot more emotionally intelligent you know there's all those factors that we we put a lot we put high value on you know and that's why we have always been dead against the the sort of one-to-one learning environment because it's quite static and it's quite um, in my opinion rather boring and you you learn so much from your peers you know um so yes i i think that you know in terms of developmental needs it's going to have a severe hindrance um you know and i'm I'm really pleased to have heard that from from yourself now because you know I've, i've always had that worry um coming from an expert like yourself you know at least it makes me feel a little better that knowing that we're kind of doing the right thing i just want to think about the other people involved in this though so let's start with teachers 
first of all. How can we build this sort of build solutions and, and do this in such a way that we're actually making it possible for teachers to do their job right and in such a way where at least, I mean, they're going to feel extra pressure. Of course they are. But how can we, we lessen that as much as we can? And how can we make sure that they can go out and, and deliver a curriculum in the way that they, they, they would have been accomplished to doing, or at least get as close to that in these particular circumstances? So one thing is I think we can't have a blanket response. We have to empower schools and individual schools to come up with creative responses in the way that Mittal service already does. So we need to say to head teachers, okay, this is the problem. We want you to come up with solutions. And they're going to come up with interesting, complex responses. So for example, there's nothing wrong with identifying the children that are more vulnerable, getting them into the school so they have real world contact, the professional teachers can see them, they have social distancing and appropriate levels of PPE, and then having their classmates join where the schools have these facilities via some online service so that you have a mixed economy in the same classroom. So mm. that's just one thing. I would urge that what we do is we start a conversation with schools that stops being so binary about open and closed and starts to focus on what are the solutions that you already have in place. Because I'm telling you, I know a lot of teachers, they're champing at the bit to do something. Because they mm. know, like, just in the same way that Mittal is going, thank you, Noel, for saying that. I'm feeling this. You're saying, you're saying it now. Every mm. single childcare professional is saying exactly the same, that they want to be... Um, and we should utilise that energy and resource and turn it over to them and start saying, well, come on, you come up with the solutions. You're the experts here. How can we do this? Rather than having a black and white conversation. So I, I think if we have that sort of challenge out there, people are going to rise to that challenge and come up with solutions that in this podcast, we're not even going to begin to think about. Mm. And what's your view on that, Mattel? I mean, how, how can schools go about it? I, I like the idea of the mixed economy classroom. The only, the only thing that I can see being a potential issue is where you've got schools that are you know, directly in um, areas where there's, you know, with, with low socio, you know, um, yeah. social economic... Um, they can be overwhelmed at all, exactly. Yeah, and that, that is the only time, because I remember I, I, I did um, teach in a school um, like that, and I remember that, that that could have a massive impact on if, if we tried to get all the kids to, to basically come in, it would be the majority of the kids having to come in, and, and, and yeah. do we have enough computers? Probably not, you know. I remember there being two or three computer rooms, you know, to serve, you know, a whole school. So again, that goes back down to resources and, and viability in that sense. So the response, like you said, Noel, has to be, you know, what it has to be uh, based on what the what the school um, can deliver, and it has to be different for each school as well, based on um, exactly yeah. the types of children that they service. And, and how do we ensure that teachers as well are equipped to deliver? And if any of these new and sort of more innovative ways of doing it, how, how do we ensure that they are capable enough to, for that digital delivery? Because take a teacher maybe that's that's at the sort of latter end of their teaching career might not be as as technologically versatile as as the kids are or, or whatever. If that's the case, how do we ensure that we get we manage to do this in a way that teachers can deliver it and can feel empowered to do so? So, I mean, not to sort of advocate one type of, of software to use, but I know that, you know, 
it's, it's relatively simple to set up Microsoft 365, right? Yeah. For education within schools, they get great, you know, they get great uh, rates as well for education. So having the right IT infrastructure within the school is, is so important. And I think this has highlighted the amount of organizations that don't have the correct IT infrastructure in place. Um, so, I mean, really, I mean, it should have been relatively simple, you know, moving the learning online instead of having um, your classes face-to-face, -face, they're online classes. So, you know, kids would just sign in, um, log into their lessons as they would on a normal day. So it would have kept their routine exactly the same, you know, but unfortunately not every school has the same infrastructure and hasn't got the same standard of infrastructure to be able to do that. And I think in theory, it should have been quite simple, but it's, you know, it's highlighted so many issues here. Well, I think in practice, I mean, you're, you're pointing it out. The, the solution is there is no one solution. And we're just going to have to accept that people are just going to do the best they can with yeah. the goal of reaching out to as many children as possible. Yeah. And if we do a pragmatic response, I have absolutely total confidence that if we empower schools and local heads, that that is what will happen. And that's what happened when we started empowering head teachers some years ago around academy processes and said, you have the power and authority to make decisions. They got to the job and they did a bloody good job. And the, the academies worked very well on that basis when we stopped expecting just one simple centralized response. And I'm, I'm very, very clear that we go back to schools and say, the aim is to reach out to as many children as possible, use whatever you need, whatever resources that you can, do it in the best way that you can. They're going to come up with solutions that are fantastic work and they won't be perfect, They'll be ad hoc, mistakes will be made, um, but they will start moving in the direction that we need to move in. And that's the point I would like to make. So do you think funding's needed for that then? Do you think there's an imperative so. to give schools money to do that? I'd like to hear the Chancellor say something like with schools that he said with um, uh, health. And he said on health from day one, we'll give you whatever you need. And I'd like to hear him say that. I agree. I think it would be wonderful for schools to have that boost. Because like I said, for me, it's worrying that, you know, that it's, it's basic infrastructure in this day and age. It's basic infrastructure that every, every school should have, you know, access to. Mm -hmm. So yeah. really, every child should have, be able to access that through school. And I think genuinely, if there's one area where they need to invest, it's that, you know, and, and the government really needs to, you know. Um, I think you're right, Mittal. There's an opportunity here, isn't it? Absolutely. There's an absolute opportunity to turn this situation around and start putting in place some of the infrastructure that's always been needed in schools. Yeah. Because you're absolutely right. Um, the idea of just shifting to online spaces should have been as simple as a flick of a switch. Yeah. yeah. And it was. And we have to really ask serious questions as to why wasn't it that simple? Because it, I'm telling you, it was for Harrow. That's what they did. Yeah. They flipped a switch yeah. and every single student they've got is in virtual classrooms getting high quality education. Absolutely. Every yeah. school can do that. The, the resources, the, the systems exist to do that. And they just need to be rolled out. Affordable, affordable systems. Absolutely. As well. 
And they can be rolled out tomorrow. They can be rolled out tomorrow and they're not that complex because like you say, they're designed for teachers to use, yeah. not for computer experts to use. Exactly. I think there's going to be quite a forgiving attitude to that as well from parents. Like you're saying mistakes will be made and stuff, but if yeah. you actually empower schools to be proactive, parents are going to expect that. that I mean, this is this is an unprecedented thing. So so exactly. I, don't, I think people's level of, they're not going to expect schools to get it nailed on the head. There's going to be that thing like, okay, so that didn't work but this worked really well. And if you create a dialogue there, if you create a, a sense of interactivity and a sense that everyone has a bit of ownership of this, then that can actually potentially become something really positive societally yeah, exactly. and educationally. We need yeah. to create a sense of urgency about it. You know, risk, risk is there, but risk management is there as well. We need to get out of the headlines and stop being rabbits trapped we are intelligent adults, grown up. We can have problem-solving conversations like this. If this type of conversation starts happening in every single school up and down the country, then we will start moving forwards. But we need to empower people to have these conversations and say, it's your decision. Go make the decision. Go find out what the solution is here. Keeping children's needs at the centre of that conversation. The goal is to get children back in touch with each other. Some excellent points being made here by both of you. And I think it's good that we're getting to the point where this discussion feels like it's becoming a bit a, a bit more positive, essentially, because there's lots of worry out there. And I think parents are quite right to be worried because this is a... I mean, <laughs> your concern for your children's health is one thing, but you're also going to be concerned about their mental well-being. A lot of parents will be under stresses of their own, um, whether they're furloughed, financial, whatever. There's there's lots to be aware of and, and plenty to be concerned about here. In, in some ways, the children might actually be more resilient. And eventually, as you guys have alluded to, whether it be three years or not, humanity is going to overcome this virus. But what are the key things that parents can can start doing before the, the education system writes itself in order to keep kids learning going during this lockdown, would you say? I would, I would say, you know, like, like I said, parents are facing a lot of pressure at the moment. So my advice to parents is not to feel pressured, you know, to keep their children entertained all day. Um, I think one good thing that has come out from homeschooling particularly is the fact that you know a lot of creativity actually spikes out of boredom so i've noticed that there's a lot of kids um that are actually doing interest-based learning so you know um that they find a project that they're really interested in and then they actually you know learn about it themselves you know yeah and i think that's a massive deal because normally they wouldn't do that if they're in a school you know so this is a chance for children to really sort of find out a little bit more about what is it that they want what do they enjoy what do they like doing you know and having that time to sort of understand who they are is also quite important you know so i think that you know i know that there is a lot of um negative aspects of, of, of the situation but i think one of the, the key areas is, is this sort of finding out about themselves a bit more and really you know finding out more about their interests mm. and and noel i was interested in your points with regards to sort of shouting a bit louder about this and, and making sure noise is heard what's the key to that what's the key to trying to to create that change that we've been discussing uh, yeah, I mean, I, if you don't mind, I might just also um, answer the first question about 
um, taking some of the worries away from parents. Um, I mean, if I was a parent and the, the parents and families that I am currently working with, I've told them not to worry about following a curriculum unless it's been taught by teachers. You know, yeah. if they have teachers coming online and teaching them, great, send your kids to school. But if you don't, don't worry about it. Um, more important is the sort of continued emotional and psychological development of your child. And that can happen in lots of ways. So my advice to parents is keep it simple, have a straightforward structure in place, uh, give plenty of space, as Mitella said, for your children to naturally and creatively explore what they're interested in create spaces in which complex social groups can exist online for your children. So if that means you will know the parents of um, your children who they go to school with, uh, get hold of their details and set up little WhatsApp groups and set up um, mm -hmm. Zoom groups so that those kids can see each other and deal with the loss of each other and socialise with each other. Do those types of things and focus on those types of things. And you are uh, creating what you talked about, um, Stuart, which is... Uh, resilience now resilience from a psychological perspective is simply this it is the number and quality of the emotional relationships around you mm -hmm. you increase and improve the quality of those social relationships and you will develop the resilience to deal with just about anything if you yeah. take away and you um, and you worsen the quality of those social relationships your resilience drops off. Uh, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. So the more you increase, the more resilient you are to life circumstances. In terms of, you know, how do we go about getting these agendas uh, on? Um, you know, in most of the structures that exist where that would happen, such as going to the parliamentary groups, etc., no longer exist. And I think the only way you can do it is the way in which we are doing it now, which is by getting onto what media does exist and shouting about it as loud as we can, mm. that this needs to change. There are plenty of organisations, teachers, unions, etc., that have very, very powerful voices. Um, and it's about identifying those children's charities, networking with them and giving them a platform. And it's about events like this as well, um, getting these ideas out. Because, you know, what seems to me to be happening in this conversation with us is that we're moving from a position of having been, you know, the beginning of the podcast, you know, stuck in the headlights ourselves. And what do we do? What do we do? Into freeing up and remembering that we are creative adults that can come up with solutions if given a facilitating environment. And so getting podcasts like this out are really important, which is why I agreed to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, unfortunately, I happen to be really busy at the moment. I say unfortunately because I don't welcome the fact that people are being traumatised by this situation. Um, but I put aside time because I think it's vital that we start these conversations on every single level. You know, yeah. if I could get hold of Bojo at the moment, I would. <laughs> and I'd sit him down and say, what the bloody hell are you doing about getting our schools open in whatever form it is so that our kids are going to be okay? Well, it's something he should be thinking about because he's just had another kid anyway. So <laughs> I think that's, um, that, that, that's a point to make. Um, and, and, and one thing just to, just to sort of, because I think we have, we, we've sort of said how, how things that need to be done and things like that. And, and it's right to point out what should be happening. But it's important to remember, schools and teachers have had to adapt to this new sort of sense of normal in a matter of weeks. And, and there's loads of good work being done. Um, there's also school staff who are unable to work due to illness, isolation, shielding, all of these things. 
and, and, and my sort of final question to, to, to you guys is just about the concerns that I saw in the Huffington Post about how the, the UK is going to have a much higher rate of the, the so-called invisible children when the country finally emerges from the coronavirus lockdown. So how important do you think the role of what we're doing now within the education system and more within the child developmental sort of system, because that, that's the kind of prism we've been looking at this in, how important is getting this right and how soon we do it at this point? There has to be a balance between safety and obviously making sure that we get the kids in as soon as possible. I mean, you know, I support Noel's um, statement before, you know, saying that we're actually, kids are losing out, you know, um, the economy is obviously suffering, but let's just put the kids in the picture. They're the ones who are losing out the most and we need to close that gap as soon as possible. So really, again, you know, supporting Noel's um, previous statement as well, understanding what the kids want, understanding how they're feeling at the moment will then also um, inform future strategy as well. Um, and, and like I mentioned before, I really do believe that there's going to be a larger emphasis um, and a more structured well-being program uh, or curriculum okay. within schools. There has to be. Yeah, with that one one thing I would say is that at the moment uh, we have an attitude talking about invisible children etc we think of most parents think of children like with um, significant problems as as somebody else's child because it's still only a percentage of children it might be 20% of children but that's still only a percentage what we're dealing with now is that that percentage starts to be the norm mm. that's what we're looking at if we don't start dealing with this now that we go from a percentage of children having significant problems to it being the norm. At the moment, we can't even deal with, you know, um, child and mental health services can't even deal with it only being a percentage of children. There's no way they can deal with it being the norm. We have to deal with this issue as a matter of urgency yeah. because there, there will be no way of dealing with it, I tell you. The facilities, yeah. the resources do not exist. Mm for a significant increase in the percentage of children with um, severe and enduring problems. We don't have the resources for that. And what that means is that we don't have an economy. Mm. It's over. So I, I, I'm aware that you need to sort of go, uh, no, because you've got clients around. So I just want you to ask you to end on a positive for us. So, so what reasons do we have to be positive despite all of these concerns and, and this myriad of problems right now? I mean, I think that we have a, a really complex, evolved, mature society in the UK, and we can be really, really proud of it. And we can really, when once we identify a problem in the UK, we start to work together as a team on solving it. And we just need to put this problem out there in the public consciousness in a non-binary way, and we will find solutions. I have great belief and faith in the education professionals that we have, in the health professionals that we have. We have a long history of public service, and we can be rightly proud of that. Once we start this debate out there, I'm telling you that the education professionals that exist will pick it up, they will run with it, and they will come up with solutions without a doubt. So just same question to yourself, Mittal. What reasons do you think there are to be positive despite all of this right now? I think personally there 
is a lot to be positive about. Now, for the first time, there's going to be lots of conversation between schools and parents, children. It's going to drive innovation. It's going to start asking those questions, you know, what's working, what's not, you know, in terms of education in general, the system. And I think some really great things might come out of this, you know, the way in which, you know, schools and classes will be structured, um, you know, and what's actually important as well. So I think this could be quite an exciting time for, for education. And fair enough, okay, you know, um, there's been a, a little bit of pressure, you know, in the educational system at the moment. But I think we could come back you know, pretty strong if we work together. You know? Well, it's that, it's that. It's also the fact that this is almost like it's forcing innovation, isn't it? So it's a time of flux and it's something that we can look at and we it may be one of those where we come back and don't get me wrong, I'm not forgetting anyone that's listened to episode three can hear the, the impact that this virus is having in a, in a tangible sense on people's lives. But there are going to be positives come out of all this pain and all this anguish and this sort of forced innovation for the education sector is going to change things and it's going to change things in a way that I don't think it's going to be the same again. Can you kind of envisage some of the ways that it might change for the education sector by the end of this? Just quite a few things. I mean, really in terms of uh, the subjects, I mean, this is something that we were having a chat about um, my, my team and I were talking about the subjects and, well, is it necessary for all of the kids to, to do sort of nine or 10 GCSEs? Is it absolutely necessary for them to pick subjects that they're really not, they're just having to pick for the sake of, you know, because that's yeah, what, arbitrarily, yeah. There you go. You know, will it change the way that um, examinations will take place? There might not be examinations. You know, kids might decide that they want to, you know, start a trade earlier on, you know, instead of having to go through that whole academic process. I think it's going to open up a lot of questions, a lot of debate as to what is working and what isn't. You know, I mean, only a few years ago, we had the change where you've got all the exams at the end of one year. Is that working? Mm. Surely, if those children were sitting modular exams, they would have been in a better position now than those kids who are having to sit those exams at the end of the year and having their exams cancelled. So, you know, it's sort of raising all these sort of questions. And I think that's the beauty of it, personally. And I, I, I love innovation. And I think education was sort of seen as a as sort of backseat and it wasn't sort of given much um, sort of attention to. Mm. But I think now this will truly um, change things. And I'm excited about that. And it's good that you've got such a positive attitude. And there are there are resources out there. Um, we're going to come on to yourself in a moment, but I can think of the, the Joe Wicks online PE lessons. Um, the guest that we're going to have on this coming Monday, Tranjik O'Hara, my, my friend Tosh, he's doing tutorials for all sorts of things, encouraging kids and parents alike to explore new skills, such as making videos and, and things within the arts. So I'm really looking forward to the chat in episode five with him. But you are running classes which will be available online, won't you, Natal? So tell us a bit about about that and how people can become involved. 
so I, I just thought, you know, six weeks, seven weeks without having any formal teaching for, you know, non-members of Spark is, is a long time. So for, for me, it was about making sure that I'm able to deliver science lessons online and they're open to parents and students. Actually, we've had so many parents say, can, can we join in? Is that really? Yeah, they're like, I want to learn all about atoms. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's do this. So basically, we're, we're, we're holding them on, on Facebook. I'm doing a Facebook Live on our Spark Academy page. Um, and every Wednesday, 10 o'clock till 11, um, I'm going to be teaching science to anybody and everybody. I think we've got people in Bristol tuning in, Milton Keynes, Leeds. We've got people from everywhere tuning in. It's going to be fun. So, um, yeah, so every week, science myself hey nothing wrong with that so what we'll do is once we share the podcast we'll be quite happy to to make sure that that the people are aware of that and can become involved in that and i imagine it'll be the kind of thing where people can just sort of dip in and 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 kind of kind of go go running with it so absolutely we will have the lives if they're unable to make it um on 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 that particular day and time then we'll have those videos available on our website as well um and we'll also be um We'll also be having um, activity sheets and worksheets as well that kids can have a go at at home. Um, so, so yeah, that, that will all be available on our website too. So any parent who either wants to have a go themselves or take advantage of the programme that Metal Thanky has put together, make sure and visit the Spark Academy website and Facebook pages. If anyone's interested in finding out about our other expert voice, Noel McDermott, then you can do so on his website, which is noelmcdermott.net. That should just about finish things for the fourth episode of my Corona podcast, Troops and True Pets. Thanks for being with us once again and for supporting the pod. I hope that wee glass of milk was refreshing. Thanks as well to Metal Thanky and to Noel McDermott. And thanks to yourselves for listening. We'll be back in no time at all with episode five, which should be a cracker. But until then, stay safe and stay sane. That's all for today. Hope the podcast was useful for you. It can now be found on all of the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for My Corona Podcast or Hodgie the Hack. That's H-O-D-G-E-Y, the hack. You'll find us at MyCoronaPods on Twitter and just search for the My Corona Podcast on Facebook. And if you liked My Corona Podcast, please share, rate and subscribe.